Welcome to the Woman Who Rubs the Mountain podcast, a gathering place for conversations about ecological embodiment and intimacy with place. I'm your host, Kendra Ward, acupuncturist and land alchemist, currently living on traditional Abenaki land in what is now called Vermont. In these explorations, we wonder, what happens when we rub on the body of the earth? How does the earth brush back against us? Waking up from a great forgetting, these inquiries bring us to the fluid interfaces of human body and land body. Along the way, it's my hope that we diversify our sense of relational kinship, discover creative, disruptive ways of living beyond our human-centric tendencies, and make wide space for a new, old, earth-honoring culture to reemerge. Because in these joy-soaked but bleak times, falling in love with the land and the beings where we live is truly the basis of healing and reconciliation, a resistance against ecocide, and the special work of our human hearts used well. My conversation today is with the creator of EcoFluency, Saskia Van Diest. Saskia consults, teaches, and facilitates workshops in nature communication. While she was completing her PhD in plant pathology in 2012, she happened to attend an animal communication workshop. And she talks about in her conversation how this just really changed everything for her. And it sparked an interest in how farmers use intuitive communication with nature to inform practical management decisions. So from 2014 to 2020, she held two postdoctoral fellowships investigating intuitive farming. Throughout her postdoctoral years, she further developed her own understanding and practice in communicating with trees, animals, land, nature spirits, and ancestors. She's also trained as a family constellations facilitator and in the way of the warrior healer. So with 14 years of experience in teaching and facilitating, Saskia's passion is creating opportunities for others to have their own experience personally with communicating with non-human nature. I think you're really gonna enjoy our conversation and enjoy learning more about ecofluency. Saskia is extremely eloquent and a fantastic teacher. She's very knowledgeable while also having this humbleness, this graciousness. And part of what makes her unique is just that she bridges this gap, you know, with her background in academia. But that she also has this bravery, this creativity of spirit, the way that she brings forth her passion to help humans feel less lonely. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Welcome, everyone. Before we learn more about Saskia and EcoFluency, 
I'd love to just take a moment for us to give thanks and acknowledge the larger geographies, temporal and ever-changing, the big sacred intelligences that were here long before us and will be here long after us, the bodies and spirits of the mountains, the sky, the waterways, all of our local family that we don't just live with, but live in. So let us just take a moment to feel into and connect with the land wherever we are, allowing the old spirit and vast resonances to rise up into the room with us, into our hearts, into this conversation, into our stilling, our speaking, and our listening. Wonderful. Well, Saskia, I'm so excited to learn more about ecofluency, and I'd love to just ground us here in the beginning with learning a little bit more about the land where you live or maybe the many places where you live, um, how you find intimacy with this place or places, particularly from a body felt sense. And I'm curious how these places might find intimacy with you or even dream you into being. Yeah, thank you, Kendra. Thank you for having me um, on your podcast. It's always lovely to be able to share anything about my work on any platform. Um, and I love that you have launched straight into your question about place, because one of my teachers, uh, Dr. Patrick McManaway, talks about how the most important conversation in agriculture, but I believe in almost any field, would be the conversation with the spirit of place. And um, I was born in Johannesburg in South Africa, and it's there that the, thun the thunderstorms in summer um, were always my greatest thrill, and I do miss them even today. Um, I like to think sometimes that the sky and the thunder were loved putting on a show for me, as it were, because it feels like a, a huge theatrical drama. Um, but I grew up in Stellenbosch in the Western Cape, and my way of embracing and feeling embraced by the landscape there was spending time in the mountains which is why I also really like the um, title of your podcast. And so hiking, trail running, rock climbing, skinny dipping in the rivers, um, these were my favorite ways of feeling close to the rest of nature in and on the land there. Um, lazy summer days lying next to the waterfalls or falling asleep on the beach in the sun, these were about as close as I could feel to cuddling the land as it were and it, one wouldn't really think of cuddling a landscape but that's how it felt it felt like wanting to be close to mother earth you where you would nestle up to your mother for example even a grandmother um and it's hard for some people to think like how do you nestle a rock well you can <laughs> you find ways of feeling close and when you lie on a warm rock um in the sun like a lizard it's you can't feel anything but that <laughs> um but I currently live, well, I'm currently in England and I've been based here and in Wales for about five years. Um, and my favorite way of being in and with the landscape here is in the forests, with the springs, with the rivers and with the stone circles, because it's a very different feeling here to the raw, 
wilder and more majestic landscape maybe that I feel South African landscape is. But there's no less intimacy. It's still a place that has a lot to offer, a lot of nourishment and love if you know how to engage. And so for me, that has come through um, by being in forests, um, hugging or sitting under a tree, especially the broadleaf trees that one has here, like the beech and chestnut and oak and so on. They feel like home to me. And this might be because I have some European ancestry. Um, my father's German, my mother is Indian. I've never been to India, so I don't know what it would be like to be with the landscape there. Um, the landscape in England is definitely much colder and wetter and flatter generally than South Africa. Um, but by working very closely with the tree and plant spirits that are native to these lands, that has helped me to feel more comfortable with it. It feels like I'm dreaming into the floral kingdom, so to say. The If one thinks about floral, it's not just the, the flowers, but the whole plant kingdom, as it were. And um, they're much older than the animal kingdom. So finding ways of engaging with the landscape in that way has helped me to sink into my animal body a little bit more as as a being in and on the landscape. And um, by doing that, there's a word which I don't know if it exists. I'd like to think I made it up. I become in microbed by the landscape. So, so much of our bodies are um, microbial. Um, and there's obviously a lot of research that's come out about how we are more microbial cells in and on and around our body than we are human cells. And so when we engage with the landscape, we are swapping microbes and we become in microbes, enmeshed in the landscape. And then those microbes communicate and mate and interact with um, the microbes that are in my body and they swap DNA. And so in, on such a level, I am on a cellular and DNA becoming part of the landscape in addition to the energetic side of it. So in many ways, there are so many, and that's like about the most intimate way you can be. You know, when you kiss somebody, you're swapping saliva, you're swapping microbes, and that changes who you are. Um, now, I'm not going to kiss a tree. I mean, I have kissed trees, but I'm not going to um, get much closer to a tree. And so being able to just feel close to a landscape in that way feels like I can become the landscape, be the landscape, and allow the landscape to express itself through me. Beautiful. I'm curious, when you move from landscape to landscape, you know, they, they, I've, I've read that um, takes like a few days for our bodies to kind of fill with the water of the local waterways where we are. Like when we're drinking water, you know, from the tap or where, wherever we've landed and, you know, it takes those days or, or our own personal waterways then fill with those waters locally. Do you find at this time in kind of sharing space with two different places that there's a certain time frame within yourself personally that it takes to integrate kind of re- uh, you know, let those microbes sort of, you know, mm, cover you fully. Yes. I mean, the first amount of time that pops into my mind or length of time is about a week for me. Um, and that's not just for the microbes, but it's also so that I can feel that my soul, which doesn't travel probably at the same um, speed as an airplane, you know, it takes a bit longer to travel, um, 
somebody once said to me that they feel like their soul cannot travel faster than a horse because that's about as natural as what many of our ancestors felt was was our pace you know it's a human pace um and so it takes me a few days to catch up with where i am to land and to for my body to become used to the water to the environmental frequencies to um the electromagnetics of the place if i'm sleeping in a bed that's oriented in a different to a different cardinal direction, for example, to what I'm used to, it feels like I have to recalibrate almost. So um, for, for a number of reasons, it feels like it takes a while to settle. And that can be sped up, you know, if you're greeting the spirit of place, if you are um, greeting the ancestors and the guardians of a place, it helps you to land more easily. Some places will take longer than others. Um, we don't always necessarily ask for permission before we are in a place, but I think that if we had a habit of doing so, our transitions might become easier. And also generally just eating food from that place that is grown there, eating something wild, um, you know, a herb, um, little dandelion leaf or a little bit of clover or um, something that that is edible, that's, you know, non-poisonous, helps us to also imbibe the energies of that landscape through the plant, through the food. So it's finding different ways of being in a place, becoming part of that landscape, even if it is just temporary. It feels like it's a more, it's a fuller, deeper way of relating with our environment and therefore with ourselves because how we treat and how we engage with the outer landscape has a lot to do with how we engage and treat our inner landscape. Well, I'm really curious to hear a little bit more about your studies and background in plant pathology and how this moved into plant communication. I studied agriculture because at the time, I mean, I initially wanted to study medicine because I wanted to help people, you know, save people's lives and um, improve their health. And then shortly I got into medicine and shortly before the university courses started, I actually changed my degree entirely to agriculture. And initially um, I was going to study soil science because I thought, you know, many of the problems that we face in health start in the soil. If our nutrition is going to be poor, then everything from there is going to have a knock-on effect. But then the way they were teaching soil science at the university was, forgive the pun, terribly dry and boring. And so I thought, no, I'm not doing this. <laughs> and then I thought, okay, agriculture in general is the largest interface that we as a species have with the rest of nature. It's the largest industry in the world. Um, second is the fashion industry. And that's going to be based on agriculture because of the fibers and the textiles. And so I studied plant pathology because it, half of the food grown worldwide is eaten by pests or beings who are considered to be pests and pathogens before it even reaches the market. And so initially I studied plant pathology because I wanted to reduce those um, losses to reduce poverty. And I say losses in inverted commas because it's lost to humans, but it's still nourishing other life on earth. And so this will speak to a little bit um, what we might get to about, you know, how we how we consider other beings and boundaries and um, the perception of how we understand each other and um, ourselves. Anyway, so back to plant pathology. Um, during my PhD, I came across animal communication. I heard about it at a, a friend's birthday party, and it struck me because I really liked the idea of being able to communicate with the rest of nature on a telepathic level, um, on a level that would be was, um, independent of time and distance and space. 
but the, and so the idea intrigued me because as a child I had watched cartoons and um, you know seen movies like Marvel comic movies um, maybe not as a child but throughout my childhood I'd, I'd watched stories and read stories about how superheroes could do this and so I thought what me no I could never do that but this the the person at the party who was talking about this shared so many stories I thought well maybe there's something to this and so um, about a year later I gathered the courage to go and attend an animal communication workshop and it was astounding how in a weekend workshop with approximately 35 or 40 other people complete strangers everybody had the same experience of being able to send and receive messages on a telepathic level and that information that we received was accurate we could validate it and so that changed everything for me. That was the beginning of the rest of my life. It was the single biggest turning point in my life that I can still track to this date. And um, it felt like a natural evolution so that my interest from plant pathology and understanding how the role of plants in agriculture and in food and so on, of course I would want to go into plant communication because I realized that if we are able to communicate with animals, of course, we can communicate with plants where, you know, the same principles apply regardless of whether you're communicating with a being that has a heart or a central nervous system or even a physical body or not. Um, the same principles apply. It's all possible. Um, and we can get into that a little bit later if you wish. Um, but the point for me was if we can communicate, it means that our relationship changes. And so if our relationship changes, it means that we can negotiate agreements and so that's where what now I know of as um, something called an, an eco-peace treaty or an eco-treaty, which is a term coined by Jim Conroy and Bashar Alexander. Um, in I think they're based in Vermont in the USA. And it's the idea of negotiating an agreement with a being who you would consider to be problematic, whether it's your food garden or your home or your farm um, or your organization even, is to come to an agreement where respecting the life, the being of the other, whilst at the same time finding a way of growing a crop without having to target that being, whether it's a fungus, whether it's a virus, a bird, a bacteria, a rat, anybody. It, it means that all of life is allowed to exist, but there's, there's an understanding that through communication, you can find a way of living more harmoniously with the rest of life. And so for me, it felt like a natural evolution of, cool, I would like to use interspecies communication in an agricultural context to find out how we can further reduce what are considered losses for human consumption whilst reducing the harm that we have on the environment. Because my PhD was about that. It was reducing harmful um, pesticides or fungicides that would be used to control a particular apple disease. And I thought if we could ask the fungus to, um, to reduce the damage that it causes or maybe ask it to stay to only one part of the orchard, that would make a massive difference. So that's how my interest in plant communication came about. Um, and it's grown over the years to become also about personal development, not only about agriculture. And this will maybe speak to something that we get onto later is around how the healing of the human is probably the biggest work that we have in this world, not healing the earth herself because all of the damage that comes towards the rest of nature starts with the, heat, the damage that we've caused to ourselves. Hurt people, hurt people. I am curious what it's been like in terms of the shift 
from something that feels a little bit more measurable, I guess, more culturally legitimate or scientific, according to sort of the mainstream and switching to something that maybe is a little bit harder to measure or quantify. And last night I I came across this quote from Frank Herbert, quote, deep in the human unconscious is a pervasive need for a logical universe that makes sense. But the real universe is always one step beyond logic. So I'm just just mm. curious to hear it, you know, from your heart, yeah, what that what that shift has, uh, if that's been challenging in some ways, whether it be like the people around you or just the you know in the collective or culture, uh, what that's been like for you. Well, it it's been impactful on a on a personal as well as a professional level, and on terms of a internal personal level, not just interpersonal with relationships. Um, I was engaged at the time of learning about nature communication during my PhD. And that relationship fell apart, partly, largely, because I became too weird, (laughs) thankfully. (laughs) I really wanted to speak about my experiences with animal communication and how it was real. And people would ask me, well, where's the proof? And I said, well, I can prove it. You know, it's, it's not in terms of scientific papers. I didn't know about the research that was done yet. It was hard to find research on that. Um, and at the time, there was relatively little. But I said, we can get validated information from animals we know nothing about. That in itself should be proof. And people were loath or reluctant to even take that idea on board because it threatened their worldview. And when you start to threaten somebody's worldview, they get defensive or they get offensive. And that was often the case with people around me. Um, Fortunately, there were many open-minded individuals that I came across, including within the university um, where I was studying. And so that's why I was able to do two postdoctoral research fellowships, because there were open-minded scientists who could see that the, the changes that are needed in the world require more innovative thinking, including like Professor Pluto, who's, who was at the time the vice rector of the University in Innovation and Research, said, we, the only way we're going to know where the line between possible and impossible lies is by venturing into the impossible. And that was like, wow, you are so spot on, um, such a an broad thinking individual. And it's to him that I owe the fact that I even had the postdoc to begin with. And um, so it was a mixture of having to start with a whole year of people being quite close to it to suddenly moving into different circles and then people being very open to it, including researching, I mean, not researching, interviewing farmers who were using nature communication as part of their everyday decision-making and farm management. And then I met the struggle. So it felt like there was a pendulum swinging back and forth in a way. Then I would hit the struggle in terms of having to interact with the rest of the scientific community and try and publish about my work where it would meet a wall. There were a number of journals who just wouldn't even entertain the idea, regardless of any kind of evidence that I would have found, that this is real and that it's helpful. They just said it's beyond the scope of the journal. But I believe that it was largely because it threatened the worldview, not just of themselves, but of science, which they believed, like Dr. Rupert Sheldrake talks about scientism being comparative to a religion. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to stop hitting my head against a brick wall. Well, that's what it felt like. And um, I left academia, and that was about two years ago, um, yeah, just over two years ago, and I founded Ecofluency. And I decided I've become less interested in how it works and more interested in that it works, and that it can be helpful for people on an everyday practical level. And since then, and I asked my, you know, the rest of nature to help 
make sure that I would only come across really cool people when it came to my work, which doesn't mean that I'm opposed to having critique. I welcome it. I welcome the challenge of, um, uh, yeah, of, of challenging my thinking, of um, expanding my thinking through critique, through debate. But in my own work where I'm needing to earn a living from doing this, I don't want to feel like I have to prove myself over and over again. I have enough doubt that I have to deal with almost on a daily basis. And I still seek validation in my work. I like hearing from a client who comes back to me and said, wow, that was really helpful for this and this reason. Things really changed in that, that, in that way. Um, and so, yeah, I, I prefer to now interact with people who are open-minded and open-hearted, even though they might be skeptical. I believe skepticism is a healthy thing for us to have. Um, and critical thinking. Um, but my invitation often to people is, even if you don't want to believe it, what if you were to try it before you completely dismiss it? Because I would have denied it until I had my own experiential evidence. Going back right to the beginning, that's why I went on a weekend workshop, because I thought to myself, I know the scientific community. I know how science works and how the industry works, and that you can um, fiddle with results to get the ones that you need to achieve a certain um, end goal. And so that applies to signs that I would have wanted to believe in and didn't want to believe in, including animal communication. So I thought the only way I'm going to believe it is if I have my own experience of it. And that's what changed everything for me. And that seems quite formulaic for people within the broader field of nature connection and communication is having your own experience is what shifts things for you. And that would be probably the case for anybody, whether it's um, having a religious experience or changing the way they think about a particular diet, even, you know, like if you try it out and it works for you, suddenly you're converted to like, wow, this is the way to eat. Um, and so it doesn't mean that we need to blindly accept what another person means or that we need to only be going by what feels right to us. I believe that working with nature communication complements our logic. So yes, the universe might exist beyond the logical um, boundary, but it doesn't mean that the logical boundary is not helpful. I like to go first into, an, uh, I like to explore a situation intuitively um, before it even ideally happens. So what I'll do to give you an example is I co-create all of my work with the rest of nature. So I'll sit with my uh, spirit team, my council, and I'll ask what is the best way to go about this and this? For example, like setting up a new course, how much to charge for it or not to charge, um, what content needs to be included. And then I will logically look at, does that make sense? So I'm not giving over the responsibility of how I make decisions. If anything, I'm complementing it. And I'd like to think that it becomes a more holistic process because I'm taking in more information into account that my logical process would not be able to take into account or even access. So through nature communication, through our intuition, through many other ways of, of knowing, deeper ways of knowing, we're able to access the deeper wisdom and knowledge of nature that us as humans with our limitations couldn't if we were just to use our logical brains or logical sides of our minds. Oh, I love that. And I, <clears throat> what I feel is really helpful to remember, just the relief of not having to do it alone as a human all the time. Like that there's so much 
longing to help out uh, from the land spirits and just all the, the you know, ev everyone around us that we just don't remember to ask for help or to engage. But what a relief to to let go of our human willing, our, our will, using our, our will alone to to make things happen, but instead to to really sink into the help that's everywhere and, and wanting to come forward. So. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. There's another mentor um, of mine who unfortunately passed away a number of years ago. Um, Dan Schreiber. Um, he was informally a mentor. Like I, I really looked up to his work and he used to talk about how it's nature that has the power and humans have free will. And if we lend our free will, she will lend us her power. And it doesn't mean we don't have any power or that the rest of nature doesn't have free will, but we have opposable thumbs. We have physical bodies. We have um, a creative energy and uh, a way of thinking that is different to many other beings in nature and therefore complements it. And so if we are bringing those to the table, it means that they can bring everything else that they have to the table. And then it becomes such a powerful combination. And that's, where I believe the future of not just humanity, but all of evolution on and beyond Earth lies if we want it to be a beautifully, truly harmonious future. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit. I'd love to hear you expand further about ecofluency, you know, what, mm. that, what that word means to you. Let's start with the etymology. Um, the etymology or the origin of the word um, well, it's a word that dropped into my mind in 2018. Um, and it wasn't something that I believe I could have logically come up with. I'm not that clever. I feel like the rest of nature were like, yeah, have this biscuit. And I thought, mm, that's a good one. Thank you. And then exploring what it means um, as a word, breaking it down, uh, made a lot of sense to me. So the, the word eco comes from the Greek word oikos, which means habitat or home. And it's, you know, oikos is, or eco is used also in economics and ecology. It all has to do with management of one's home in whatever sense you understand that. And fluency comes from the Latin fluentum, which has to do with not just being flowing, but being relaxed. So when people think of fluency, they'll think about a language and they'll think about how relaxed and easy flowing can you speak that language. But I like that it has to do with relaxed because there is an invitation to not only communicate in a flowing way the rest of nature, but to also just be so relaxed that you come home to being at home. You realize you are home. And so for me, ecofluency um, is about this two-way dialogue that we have with the rest of nature with an expanded range of sensory awareness. And it has to do with letting go of all of, our, well, not all, but most of our preconceptions about who we are, who nature is, um, what home is, what it all means. And so it invites a deeper exploration into life. And in that way, it's paradoxical because it's as much about unlearning what we might already think we know, as well as it is about learning new things, such as rekindling our way of um, communicating which happens in a variety of ways. So this dialogue that I talk about happens, and I mentioned it already telepathically, that's this mind-to-mind, heart-to-heart connection that is independent of time and distance. But it also is using our inspiration, our imagination, 
our intuition, um, allowing our, hum our emotions and our feelings and our sensations and this beautiful instrument that is our body to become part of how we commune and communicate. It goes beyond just verbal language. This is a, a way of, of communicating that underlies um, all languages. It predates all verbal languages. And because of that, it is so ancient. It is humans are nature. And so it is our birthright. It is our duty, our responsibility to rekindle it and awaken it because that is an ancient power that many of us have forgotten that we have. And so my goal with ecofluency, which is both the word that I use to describe nature communication, it's just one of the latest iterations for something that is so ancient. Um, it's to re-empower people. So I use the word ecofluency for my, this mini organization, which is currently still operating just as a little business that I run, the sole trader. But it hopefully will, it will grow to um, encourage more people to be practicing it so I teach and I consult with it, but also to promote the work of others in this field. Um, because I believe that the more people in this field who are saying similar or the same things about the fact that you can do this, everyone can do this, and here's how you do it, and look at the changes it can make in your life, as long as you know how to do it safely and effectively, um, then that's my goal with ecofluency as an organization. But as a movement, as a practice, as a word term, um, I don't really own it. I mean, I, I've trademarked it so that nobody else is going to take it away and prevent me from using it. But I don't want to prevent others from using it. It feels like you cannot commodify. Well, you probably can commodify wisdom, but we really shouldn't. And so what I teach in terms of how to communicate and commune with nature it's just my way of doing it. It's, it's ways that I have distilled from more than 10 years of practice and research and learning. And so, I mean, the, the final message for this question would really be, it's natural, it's immediate. I mean, it's so natural that it's supernatural, as in it's very natural. And it's ordinary, it's ordinary magic um, that is capable of bringing access to ways of knowing and ways of being that can only mean re-enchantment of one's life, only help one to feel more connected. And I remember the first time doing the nature, doing the animal communication workshop, which I did with Anna Breitenbach, who's a very well-known animal communicator, who's also South African. And um, she, it was just a beginner weekend workshop, but I remember coming away from it not only being ecstatic about the fact that I could commune and communicate with all of existence, but the most important thing, revelation I had, was that I was not lonely anymore. I could be alone with no other humans, but I didn't have to feel lonely anymore, and I hadn't realized how lonely I felt in life until that point. So this is what I realized, is that more than anything, I do, I teach this and I consult in it to help others feel less lonely. That's really at the core of, of what I what I do. And I didn't realize that it was that for a long time. Wow, hearing you say that is just shiver worthy. I mean, it just kind of moves everything. Yeah, I love this word rekindling, a remembering, I think is... Um, 
is really at the heart of things, considering that it was such a short time period ago that all of the humans on this planet were animist. You know, it, it was it was so very short amount of time ago. And so thinking about for how long um, versus, you know, where, where we've been more recently, you know, that there's, there's so much old knowing in an animist perspective of the world and that it's so much closer than we might think. I think sometimes it, it can feel daunting or people have self-doubt or feel like they need to develop sort of a confidence into doing this kind of work and, you know, you condensing it into just feeling less lonely. I mean, I think that that just, it like really hits exactly the core of things. Thank you for pointing that out. I mean, one thing I realized, and this kind of goes back to when I re- when I think about those people whose worldview felt threatened when I talked about nature communication in any form, and I should have maybe made it clearer. When I talk about nature communication, I'm talking about communication with any aspect of nature. Nature is the life that we know about here on Earth, but it is also beyond the Earth and it's beyond the physical realm. So you can communicate with plants, with animals, with microbes, with insects, with nature spirits, with plant—I mean, with planets, with the Earth herself, with our microbiome. That's really the limitation is our imagination. That's the only, um, yeah, our imagination is the only boundary, only limitation to what is possible in terms of communication. And our ancestors, of course, very worthy work to do that. And when I think about how those people who felt threatened, why that maybe was, it has to do with the fact that most people's worldview, which is based on this this, uh, paradigm of the Western reductionist, um, positivist science, ontology, this way of believing in the way that the world is, what it does is gives humans power. And so by threatening the worldview, you're threatening the power dynamic that we have over the rest of nature with that worldview. Mm. And people don't like giving up power because who are you without that? But power is lonely. You ask anybody in a a leadership position, whether it's a politician or whether it's the top of of a corporation, it's difficult, it's lonely, it's a lot of pressure, a monarch even. And... I'd like to believe that, yeah, you might feel that that's what you want, but is it what you need? Probably not. As humans, we we seek connection. We need connection from a nervous system regulation standpoint, from an evolutionary standpoint, setting ourselves apart. You're not going to get very far. And so for me, it felt a little bit like power dynamics were what was standing in the way of people taking on the idea of nature communication very often. That makes a lot of sense. And, 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 you know, and of course it's, it's happening on a very unconscious level. I think for most people, um, what we're just raised up into in terms of our, our ways of thinking about our place in the world. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I also like that you brought up is this animist perspective and so um you might have spoken about it with with other guests on your podcast so forgive me if this is just additional but for those listeners who don't know what animism is my understanding of it is as a as a as a worldview it's believing that every single aspect of the universe is conscious so 
everything is animated. Um, and because everything contains consciousness, even let's say a wooden table, the wood itself still contains consciousness, even though the tree is now dead and you use the body to make the table, you can still communicate with that table. So there's no limitation as to what is believed to be conscious. Because it is conscious, you are not only in relationship, as we know from physics, everything is in relationship with everything else all the time, but the foundation of relationship is communication. And so you can communicate with consciousness within all of existence. And that opens up everything because then it puts us in our place in terms of you are just another being that has consciousness compared to everybody else, whether it's a mouse, whether it's a big tree, whether it's your car or the materials in your car, everything is um, it's able, it's, it's possible to communicate with everything. And so everything becomes everyone in an animal's perspective. And that changes everything. Thank you for, for adding that definition. I think that that is really helpful. And I'd love to kind of lean in a little deeper with this, this idea of where we begin and where we end, especially from maybe an eco-fluency perspective. American psychologist James Hillman is known for having talked about having a psyche the size of the earth, where he really was investigating this question of where is the, where's the me, um, where does the me begin and end and where does other begin and end? And what would happen if humans made less cuts, like less separations between themselves and the rest of the living world? So, I mean, I feel this even, you've talked about this all along in different ways, even in the beginning when you talked about cuddling with the mountains or cuddling with the stones. You know, I think that that is, is taking away the cut, that's cut, taking away the separation and just leaning in in different ways. But yeah, just love to hear any other thoughts you have about that. Ah, oh, I love this question. And um, for me, it feels like, there is no clear-cut answer. I'd like to believe that it's just an ongoing exploration. Um, firstly, I want to mention that I think it's important that we acknowledge that we do have a self, an individuality that can be defined. But what becomes most interesting is how you define that boundary. Like you said, um, on one hand, one could say that we are the earth herself because our bodies are made from the matter of the earth and therefore our psyche can be the size of the earth, as Hillman said. Um, or even bigger than that. Um, and that is true. You know, you could just define your boundary as the whole earth. On the other hand, one could say that your body is an earth itself with the microbial and other etheric beings that live in and on and around you being your inhabitants. Okay, so you're a little mini earth and the atmosphere immediately around your body is the boundary of that so-called planet. And that could also be true. But if we begin to expand our perception of self and boundaries and ecosystems, to include the unseen, whether it's on a microbial level or whether it's on um, an energetic level, then we start to understand that the ecosystem of ourselves and of our bodies starts to overlap with everyone we come into contact with and everyone who has been and everyone who will be. So let's start with the fact that you know microbes are everywhere. You know Our teeth, our skin, our gut, our, the food that we eat, the door handles, the air, soil, water, glaciers, the bottom of the ocean, the meteorites, other planets and ecosystems, they're everywhere. Um, and 
even there's a university in Tennessee that discovered that fungi exist in the gut of newborns at, at birth, um, meaning that it's possible that even fungal DNA and even live fungi can cross over across the placenta from mother to fetus as a normal part of pregnancy, which completely goes against this idea of the placenta and of the amniotic fluid being sterile. Mm. You know, it starts to be like, oh, wow, actually, we are so much more than humans. We already know that there's something like between 10 and 100 times or more number of microbial cells um, in and on and around our human bodies than there are human cells. So we have far more microbial DNA going on around us than we even know. And that's important because it's thanks to viruses that we even have mammalian birth, as Dr. Zach Bush describes. And so the same is true for other animals, for trees, for landscapes. So when we communicate with the rest of nature, are we communicating with only that animal or their whole ecosystem on a telepathic level? Who's really the being with whom we're dialing into? Or are we simply communicating with other aspects of ourselves if we think of the animals, the trees, as also being extensions of ourselves and of the earth and vice versa? It's so hard to differentiate. And for me, it just feels like um, an expansion of the concept rather than a changing of the concept. And become what becomes quite fun for me is if we expand ourselves, our perception of ourselves to the unseen on an energetic level. Because then we start to include our connections to other realms, to dimensions. And then our ecosystems become even larger and more complex. So from an ancestral perspective, for example, we are continuous with our family members who have died and who are alive today. You know, we have this, this um, connection on a DNA level and on a frequency level that's going to affect us, whether we like it or not, whether we believe in it or not. And a method like uh, family constellations, for example, can help us to explore the dynamics and the patterns that exist within us and within our families. Um, so, and there's a lot of research that's been done into that. But aside from family ancestry, we also pick up on energies and even entities from people and environments we interact with, both physically and simply by being in proximity to them. And many people are aware of this. And this is, for example, where the idea of energetic clearings comes in, which is also something that I do, but I don't advertise that widely. So I will do psychic surgery. Um, I've been trained um, by the founders of plant consciousness to remove any toxic energies and entities from people's field that might block them being able to be themselves more clearly, however they want to define self, um, for their own spiritual evolution, for example, and well-being. And so, you know, people are aware of this. When you walk into a church or a graveyard or a battle site or um, anywhere, a hospital even, you can feel how on an energetic level something doesn't maybe feel right at times. And so by taking that into account, we start to be like, who actually um, we are more than the physical if we want to take that idea on. And then that non-physical side shifts as much as, as the physics might, as the physical side might change as we age, our bodies change, but on an energetic level, it can change even quicker and more dramatically. And every single human has a team of energetic beings who look after them. And the same is true for all of life in the universe. Some people might call them guardian angels or spirit allies or guides. And it doesn't really matter what one's worldview is or belief system. Um, I found that across the board, they do exist for everyone. So the question then comes in, when we are communicating with another being, are we also communicating with that whole team of energetic counterparts? When we engage in dialogue, 
or are we just communicating with one of those beings or just with the human and the rest of those counterparts are acting as spokespeople or counsel behind them so that's why i say there's no there's no answer to the question about where do i start and the other end and vice versa it just feels like where do you want to define that boundary in the same way like humans define the boundary of a country that's a human made country and um Stephen Harrod Boona, who's a brilliant author and eco-poet who unfortunately passed away in December, um, in one of his books, I can't remember which one it was, right at the beginning, he talks about how when you measure, when you use science, for example, to measure um, the size of a country, you're using this, the outer boundary to, to make, um, to delineate where's that boundary, and then you can measure the area within that boundary. But how accurate has that have to be? Do you do that from a zoomed out, you know, sort of Google Earth perspective, or do you zoom in to the every single rock around the coastline? What is your definition of boundary? And do you include um, then also the the lichen or the moss or the kelp, the barnacles that exist on those coastal boundaries? Like how how detailed do you want to go? And the same is going to be true with us. Where is the boundary, and how do you define that boundary? And I think it's important that we do acknowledge that we have boundaries, but that those are multi-layered and are far more complex. And keeping that in mind when communicating, not only with the rest of nature, but with other humans, becomes important because then we realize you are not communicating with just your partner, with your work colleague, with your friend. You are communicating with parts of them that they might not even know that exist. You know, we are communicating with the parts of them that evolved or the parts that are, of them that are stuck in wounding that they might have inherited through ancestral trauma or trauma that they've lived through in their lives um, or in other lives, if that's something that is included in one's worldview. And so it becomes such a big exploration of where do I start and the other ends. But it's an important one to bear in mind, even if you never get an answer. It brings more compassion. It, may, it means that we are able to have more meaningful conversations in a way, but mostly compassion. I have to I have to say that the level of serendipity right now, I just happen to have this book right here, The Secret Teachings. I'm holding it up right now, The Secret Teachings of Plants, which is the book that you just referenced. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. Talk about, you know, being in sync here. Um, but it is that book. Uh, where Beer mm. talks about the coastline and and our human perceptions of of trying to make everything very logical. He's talking about geometry, I believe, and mathematics and the the false idea that everything can just be sort of like measured out precisely logically, and that you know the way that things the the spiraling, circling, moving nature. It, moving quality of nature doesn't want to be pinned down that way. Um, I'd love to hear you continue to expand on your greater vision. Um, you speak of nature communication as a critical skill for human beings, a vital resource that provides the ecocultural repair necessary to grow a new way of being in the world. And so in just sort of gathering all the threads here, I'd love to hear you just yeah, explain this beautiful vision you have. It is an evolving vision. So 
I have my, my vision and my mission on the Ecofluency website under the About section, but I haven't actually updated that in a while or even looked at it to see how it needs to change. But it's going to probably be very similar, which is to equip more humans in this world with, like I said previously, not just the feeling of um, connection so that they need not feel as lonely as they did before, but what feels quite topical right now is how many more people are becoming aware of the issues that we face in the world. And I'm not talking about just the ones that have become mainstream. Um, for example, climate change, climate change seems to be very topical. Um, personally, I believe that it's hubris for us to think that we are solely responsible for climate change because there are so many other factors going on in the world right now, um, including on a solar system and a galactic level with um, our planet and our, I mean, not our planet, our solar system and our galaxy moving in ways that mean that the electromagnetics are shifting, also relevant to the earth. And so that's gonna affect the climate quite strongly. And of course we are having an impact, That's I'm not denying that, um, but we are not solely responsible for that. And that's also in, in partly in terms of my communication with the rest of nature is, is that's what's been revealed is, um, which I've been able to look at with other scientific evidence is um, we have more issues in this world going on than what we might be aware of or want to acknowledge. And there are ones that have become mainstream, but what seems to be often ignored is the fact that it's not about healing the earth as I believe for much of my life it's about healing ourselves and it's not about becoming more resilient which has also become a buzzword of late um, and resilience many people don't realize resilience doesn't just I mean people aren't even sure often what it means if we go back to the etymology of it it means it comes from the latin resiliere which means to bounce back from to go through a crisis and come back to the norm I don't believe that nature wants to come back to any norm. It wants to achieve homeostasis, a dynamic balance that is shifting and adapting to um, changing conditions. And so I'd like to think of us rather being um, aiming for harmony and for thriving. And that means whatever direction the earth is gonna take, as long as we are in, um, in harmony, then we will be okay. And I also want to point out, uh, before I answer the question more thoroughly, is that um, this beautiful scientist, Lila June Johnston, who I think just got her PhD, and she talks about how humans are a keystone species in what would be otherwise known as pristine ecosystems. So she's done a lot of research on um, indigenous communities all around North and Middle, and I think even parts of South America. And she describes how they were co-creating the landscapes together with the rest of nature so that you had food landscapes, not just farms. So instead of, for example, um, herding bison or chasing after bison, they would attract the bison across certain landscapes by providing the food that the bison would come to. So, you know, you know, build, build the city and they will come like, well, you, you kind of built the city and they will come. You didn't chase after them, so to say. I can't remember the correct metaphor for that. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that 
we're at a point in human evolution now that feels quite critical for a number of reasons. And some people are worried about survival and others believe that um, it is possible for us to thrive in the future. I don't know what is going to happen, but it feels to me that the only way that we can be in harmony with whatever's going to happen is by being in dialogue, by sitting in council with the rest of nature. And this is where nature communication comes in. This is what indigenous people from many cultures around the world um, have been doing for millennia and still do. They ask their more than human spirit teams what is needed right now in order to adapt, whether it's hard times or whether it's going to become easier times in however long. The point is you can access deeper knowledge and wisdom of, of nature that is not available to our everyday human minds. That can inform your everyday practical decisions and your long-term decisions and goals so that you can um, be more in touch, be more in tune. Many people think that science, Western science, is the only way to provide the solutions to the crises, to the issues that um, have been defined at the moment that we face. And I believe science does have some answers, but it's incomplete. It cannot take everything into account. And so if we were to augment those solutions by co-creating with aspects of nature, then that makes a big difference. For example, rather than just assuming that an ecosystem is under threat or it has certain risks, you can ask the spirit of that landscape, you can ask the species who live there, what is it that you need? It's a bit like just assuming that if you're going to take an animal to the vet, that the vet just has to look at the symptoms and do tests and prod and poke and figure out what's going on with the animal. But I've come across vets who actually do sit and listen to the animal first. Where does it hurt? Because sometimes it's not obvious in the same way that we might feel rubbish. You know, we might have all kinds of symptoms going on, but outside we look like we're great. We're doing fine. And so the same might be true with nature. It might look like an ecosystem is going through such major flux that it looks like it's collapsing. And maybe it is, but we don't know for sure. Otherwise, it could just look like it's just going through a major detox and it's shifting and adapting to changing conditions as is necessary. Or another ecosystem might look like it's completely thriving, but it's on the brink of collapse because it's been holding it together really well, like some people do, and then suddenly it crashes. So it's only when we ask and we listen that we can truly know what's going on both for humans and for more than humans. And this is where I believe that ecofluency um, as a concept, not just the organization, like I don't think ecofluency as the organization is the answer to it, <laughs> but nature communication as practiced by myself, by people I've taught, by other people in the field, by indigenous people, by um, practitioners of any kind who use nature communication in their everyday work, that this is the answer that I think many of us are waiting for. Oh, thank you so much. I I um, really appreciate, I can feel how you're sort of regularly updating, like regularly feeling into how that's evolving over time. Uh, so there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I'm, I'm wondering if you, if there are any offerings that you have, or I know that you're ongoingly teaching, if there's anything that you wanted to highlight in this moment as we come to a close. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what I mentioned is that I, I still teach and I consult um, in nature communication for individuals and groups and organizations. And my consultations continue around my teaching events. And the teaching happens online and in person. Um, 
tomorrow actually is the start of the Twin Trail program um, that's run by Embercombe here in the UK. And I'm co-facilitating on this. That's a seven months program, or maybe it's not seven months, maybe it's shorter now. It's that is both online and residential. Um, and the purpose of this program is to support people in navigating both inner and outer landscapes. So there's there are other um facilitators, Mac McCartney, who's the, the founder of Embercombe, Tuba Kirhan, who also works at Embercombe and is a beautiful facilitator. And um, Dr. Stephen Harding, who is one of the lecturers at um, the Schumacher College, at Schumacher College in also in Devon. And so I'm bringing the nature communication aspect to this because the idea is to live a life of more reciprocity, to start understanding what are the gifts that you have, how to find those in the inner landscape and bring them to the outer landscape and to find way, more, more ways of living in joy and in harmony. And so um, the details for that are also on the EcoFluency website. Um, and you can still sign up, even though the calls the, the course starts tomorrow, the call will be recorded. So anybody who still wants to join in the next month can. And the residential week for that is in July. Um, in August, I'm running a weekend retreat at 42 Acres, which is an award-winning retreat center in Somerset in the UK. Um, and that's going to be, I'm doing that on my own. Um, well, I'm facilitating on my own, but the team of 42 Acres are the ones who will be providing beautiful glamping accommodation. There's also space for a couple, one person in a houseboat on the lake where they, you might spot some of the resident beavers there, which have been reintroduced to the UK recently. Um, there'll be beautiful organic farm-grown food that are served in a forest dining experience every day. Um, and there's a bonus of a sauna included on the Friday night. And because the retreat falls in just after full moon and within the harvest festival period here in the Northern Hemisphere, on the Saturday night, we're going to be co-creating a ritual with the rest of the nature, surrounding nature, to call in what we need and want for the coming months. months. Um, so that's going to be immersed in the woodland at 42 acres and around rediscovering our natural ability for nature communication. Um, I do have a few courses, online courses happening in the next few months. There's a six-week course starting in June that is full with a waiting list. I'm so happy. Um, but we will also, I'll also be running some more three-day and six-week courses later in the year. And I'm working on a pre-recorded course on the fundamentals of nature communication, which I hope to launch in the coming months. And then next year, ideally, there'll be some eco-fluency material in the form of a book, ideally, but we'll see. Um, and then also, I do offer clearings, energetic clearings um, for people and for land and for organizations. Um, that's not a, a listed web page on the website yet, um, but I've been doing that for about a year and a half. And um, that seems to make a big difference for people often. If they feel like there's something stuck in their field, that can really help to unblock it. But mostly I focus on the, on the consultations um, and the teaching. And um, all of that information is on the website, um, ecofluency.org. Um, and anybody with questions can um, contact me through the website. Um, I look forward to, and also if if my way of teaching doesn't appeal to the listeners um, or the way I talk about this doesn't appeal, but they're interested in nature communication in general, then under the resources tab on the website, there are many other people who teach um, or research. And so I highly recommend looking at other voices in this field. And I also feature different voice every month or every six weeks whenever i send out a newsletter i'll feature other people in the field of nature communication so um if people are interested they can sign up for that newsletter um but yeah there are a number of resources on on the ecofluency website if people are interested 
And lastly, thank you so much, Kendra. I really appreciate the chance to speak about this work. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. It's our gift to witness your your passion and your beautiful open-heartedness. And, you know, it just is, I, I can feel the way that you offer, you know, this, you bridge this gap beautifully for humans and the rest of the living world. So thank you, really. Thank you for your time mm -hmm. and generosity. So thank you to the more than humans who support my work in this and support your work with the podcast and your work in general. Yes. Yes. I feel them. They're right here with me. So, well, so much gratitude to everyone for listening, for spending this time with us. And if it felt of benefit to you, please do consider leaving a review or subscribing to the podcast ongoingly from whatever your preferred listening source is. That way you can be notified whenever a new episode is released. Well, may we discover new ways while also remembering old ways of relating and being in kinship as we continue to bring an open-armed adoration and devotion for this wild earth. And I look forward to being with you on the next episode.